All right, well, we're in the book of Hosea for the first sermon in our new series on the book of Hosea. And I, for one, could not be more excited. Uh, this is going to be an intense series. It's going to be an incredible series. I think it's going to be a very uh, helpful series for all of us. Uh, it's going to have its ups and it's going to have its downs, to be sure. No book in the Bible quite like the book of Hosea. So I am excited today to get started with you, Greg's family, even if it is uh, just virtually. I'm excited that we get to open this book together and study God's Word because we're going to do what we love to do, and that is just go line by line, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. Uh, it feels kind of like um, first day of class, doesn't it? A little bit when we start a new series. Now, I was never much of a student, just to be honest with you. Never much of a student, never really big into it, never really that great at it. Um, I did graduate high school, and somehow, probably through uh, answers to my mother's prayers, I did graduate college. Um, went to about a year of seminary out west, didn't really finish uh, that, because it just wasn't quite my thing. I really liked the information, didn't so much like writing the papers. Uh, particularly the bibliographies, but as much of a, as, as I'm not much of a student, like I'm saying, um, but I always still kind of liked the first day of class, like the first week of class, like starting a semester always felt pretty good to me, um, even though I wasn't much of a student. Like I would come to class ready, like this time I'm going to give it my all. This time I'm going to study. This time I'm going to keep up with projects and tests and I'm going to know the dates when things are coming up and I'm going to be ready uh, for the grade. And I would come first day of class and be ready to pay attention. I'd have a pen, which is very unusual for me. I never had a pen any other week of class except the first week of class. After that, I borrowed pens. I borrowed more pens in college than the U.S. government borrows money. And I would get there with my pen, get ready, get started. And the professor, what do they do on the first day of class? they bust out what is called the syllabus, right? Plural is syllabi, believe it or not. And you read through the syllabus. This is why you feel like a successful student the first day, the first week of class, because they actually don't teach you anything, not really. And there's no homework and probably no projects or pop quizzes on that first class. It's just going through the syllabus. And the syllabus is really just telling you, here's what you can expect to learn. And here's what you could expect to do. And here's when those things, uh, you know, are due. And here's when those things, uh, those tests will happen. And you'll have to be here for this exam on this day. And you start to look through the syllabus. And here's what happens when you do that. You look through it. You see what you're going to learn. And you get excited. Right? Even I, a poor student, would get a little excited. Like, hey, this is going to be cool. We're going to read this book. We're going to figure out these issues, these problems. We're going to solve them. We're going to learn this topic. And also, there would be some overwhelm because there's a lot, lots of papers coming up, lots of projects, lots of due dates. This is for, you know, 50% of your grade. for 40% of your grade. What's the other 10%? Nobody really knows. And it's just overwhelming. And to be honest, as we start Hosea, it's sort of like that. Right Today, I'm sort of trying to give us the syllabus, if you will. Like, let's talk about what we're going to learn as we go through this series on the book of Hosea. That's really the goal today. And that's exciting. 
to start a new book and to see what God says, to see what he has for his people through his prophet Hosea. All the lessons that we're going to learn are going to transform us from the inside out, make us more like Jesus, make us more powerful for his kingdom through the power of the Spirit, all that. But it's also overwhelming because Hosea talks about a lot of different things and all of the things Hosea talks about are incredibly heavy. So there's a lot of things mentioned. I mean, he's going to go for a lot of topics. He's going to go after a lot of sins and talk about why they're wrong and and accuse us of doing them. He's going to talk a lot about God's grace and how it plays out. He's going to talk a lot about about, about life and death. He's going to talk about judgment and salvation. I mean, it'd almost be easier today if I was preaching on what is not in the book of Hosea. right? So there's a lot, and all of it is the weightiest stuff of life. Every topic Hosea hits is of utmost importance. It's all big, right? There's no little religious squabbles in this, dotting I's or crossing T's. Can we do this on the Sabbath? Can we not do that on the Sabbath? Whatever. This is all heaven and hell, judgment and righteousness, Uh, God's wrath, God's mercy and grace, right? Disobedience and obedience. This is all weighty. So it's also overwhelming as we start this morning, right? What I want to do is take all those really heavy topics and I want to try to boil them down to four key categories for the morning and just kind of show you the syllabus, right? There's a lot going on in the book of Hosea and it's intense, But here are four things we're going to learn about in this series as we go through this book. We're going to learn about Scripture. We're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to learn about ourselves. And we're going to learn wisdom. We'll learn at least those four things as we go through the book of Hosea. So let's break this down. Let's break this down. First, we'll start here. Hosea, the book, teaches us about the nature of Scripture. Hosea, which is Scripture and in the Scriptures, teaches us about Scripture. Throughout the whole book, we learn about the Word of the Lord. In fact, that's how the book starts. If you want to turn there, we're in Hosea chapter 1. The best place to start is at the beginning. So we'll start in verse 1. The superscription of the book reads this way. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, those are the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the king of Joash, king of Israel. So in this first verse, here's what we see, that Hosea is giving to us, writing down for us, the word of the Lord. They are Hosea's words. And they are the Lord's words, something we call inspiration. Over and over again, we'll see how Hosea, the book itself, teaches us about the nature of Scripture. Here's the idea. Here's where we start. Hosea is a prophet. In fact, this book of the Bible is found in a section of your Bible called the Minor Prophets. Now, they're not the Minor Prophets because they're playing minor league. They got major league truth. But the reason they're called minor prophets is because they are shorter 
than the other prophets. Right? So you ever sat down and tried to read Isaiah? Ever tried to read Jeremiah in one sitting? Uh, my guess is you probably are not disciplined enough to do so because that would take hours. Those guys wrote really, really, really long books for the Lord. Some guys, just as important, just as major, wrote down their prophecies and they were summed up, summarized, only a few were included, and they were shorter books, thus they're the minor prophets. Micah, Joel, Amos, Malachi, Zephaniah, the list goes on. Hosea is in that group. He has written for us his prophecies. He's in the section of our scriptures called the minor prophets, but he is not placed there in chronological order. Right? Like if you were just thinking like, hey, I'm going to go through the Bible, it's going to be chronological, it's going to make a lot of sense, uh, you are going to be disappointed. For example, I'm pretty sure, uh, if I remember right, Daniel comes before Hosea in the order of the books that are given to us in the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing bad about that. There's no evil plot behind that. However, Hosea actually was way before Daniel, at least 100 years before Daniel. And some of the stuff Hosea prophesies happened in Daniel's lifetime. It came to fruition. It came true. Those predictions uh, came to their fullness in Daniel. Though Daniel is listed before him in our traditional set of books in the Old Testament, the way they're laid out, their order, it is not chronological. In fact, Hosea was one of the first prophets. He was at least one of the first writing prophets for sure. He was prophesying in the last half of the 8th century. So this is about 700 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene. It was a few hundred years after King David, if you remember him. Okay? So this is the second half of the 8th century and it's literally the second half. Hosea not only was one of the earliest prophets, the earliest writing prophets, but he also prophesied for one of the longest ministries recorded in the scriptures, prophesied for 50 plus years, half a century. Now, <coughs> he, he only records roughly 27 years worth of prophecy in his book. Basically, you're thinking, hey, 50 years of prophesying, 50 years of ministry, why has his book a minor prophet? Why, though he was contemporary with prophets like Isaiah, is his book only 14 chapters? Well, here's likely what happened, right? Hosea, though he prophesied for 20, um, sorry, for 50 years plus, he only gives us about 27 years worth of prophecies listed very succinctly in 14 chapters because what likely happened is that some point in the middle of his ministry or towards the middle of his ministry he began to work with probably disciples of his students of his to distill his prophecies into written form into selections that one could read through rather quickly so that he could summarize what God was saying to the people and he could share it with them and their leadership. He's one of the first ones to do this. He's one of the first ones God told to do this, not just prophesy out in the streets and out in the city and out in the country, but write it down, summarize it, and share it. That's what Hosea did. See, the book of Hosea itself 
teaches us a little bit about the rest of Scripture. Right? It is God's Word written down and given to His people. This is what the book of Hosea is. Right? To learn this further, to kind of really dive into this, we need to see two things. We need to see what happens in the book of Hosea, and we need to see what happens with the book of Hosea. Okay, Hosea is writing, like I said, in the, one of the earlier historical periods of the nation of Israel. He is writing at a time around 2 Kings 17, chapter 17 era, after Israel had been divided into two nations. So for those of you who don't know, Israel, the people of God, one nation. Through King David, through King Solomon, after that, they had beef and split up into the northern kingdom, which is still called the kingdom of Israel. In Hosea, sometimes it is called Ephraim, since that was the largest of the tribes in northern Israel. And it split from Israel in the, in the north and in the south, a land called Judah, which is where Jerusalem was. So Hosea is prophesying in the split kingdom, right? There's a northern side, there is a southern side. And what's going on, if you read the backdrop of Hosea, which is around 2 Kings 17, somewhere in there, you're going to find that the southern tribes, Judah, their kings, worshipped God for a period of time. And at that period of time, the northern kings did not worship God. God. In fact, they fell from grace. They had the law, they had the temple, they had the sacrifices, and they tried to incorporate those things with the worship of foreign gods. Here's what happened. Okay, what happened was they wanted to become stronger. This is the northern side, northern uh, kingdom of the nation of Israel. And so they made unholy alliances with unholy nations. One of those nations is a nation called Assyria, and they worshiped a god called Baal. And here's why the alliance was unholy. It's because part of the alliance was that Israel, that northern kingdom, in order to have their protection, rather than trust in the protection of God, they had to have this protection from Assyria. The deal was you also have to worship our god. So they're going to kind of try to act like they're keeping this temple system going, making some sacrifices, having some priests, but they're also going to build high places to Baal, idolatry, different temples in his honor that come with all kinds of pagan rituals such as, but not limited to, temple prostitution, child sacrifice, and all sorts of other types of uh, debauchery. And what happens is Hosea, particularly around, let's say, chapter 4 and 5, Hosea comes in and says, listen, i got a prophecy. God says, if you do not put a stop to this, put an end to this, if you do not repent, judgment is going to come to you. This nation that you are aligned with, Assyria, is going to end up changing the rules. You're not going to like it, so they're going to attack. And guess who's going to win? They are, because God's not going to step in and save the day to teach you that you ought to have been worshiping him and him alone this entire time. Hosea comes in with this word. This is what's in the book of Hosea. Repent. He comes in with this word. Repent. Repent. 
And he says this, preaches this, prophesies this to that northern kingdom. Does that northern kingdom repent? They do not. And every word of the Lord that Hosea prophesied proved true. See, Hosea likely gives this prophecy in chapter 4 and 5 around 760 B.C. And everything was fine. Everything was prosperous. Everything was good until about 744 B.C. when Assyria, who they were in an unholy alliance with, got a new king. I can't pronounce his name. I'll give it a shot. But it looks like his name is Tiglath-Pileser III one of their more prominent kings of ancient Assyria. And he wanted to switch up the tributes and the taxes, and he wanted new versions of their dedication. And there was strife between the two nations. And eventually, in 732, he invaded that northern kingdom of Israel, and he defeated them, just like Hosea prophesied. Their judgment came just as the word of the Lord had said. That's what's partly in the book of Hosea. Now, what happens with the book of Hosea? This is where I think it gets rather interesting. From what I study and what I read, here's what I gather, that after this happens with the northern kingdom, this defeat, this judgment, this southern kingdom, Judah, begins to follow suit particularly King Ahaz and King Hezekiah, two guys listed in verse 1, if you're paying attention, they start doing that same thing that the northern king did and that the northern kingdom did. They start making unholy alliances with unholy places, particularly Egypt. And just like the northern kingdom, they too decide that they will make an alliance, though it costs them worshiping Egypt's gods making sacrifices to them, and doing their pagan rituals. So Hosea, who just saw this happen in the northern kingdom, begins to write down what happened there around chapters 4 and 5, and then later in the book, he writes warnings to Judah as well. And his message to them is, repent, right? This just happened. With the king in the north, this just happened with Assyria, and now it's going to happen to you down here in Judah with Egypt. So he gets his prophecies together, he writes some new ones, gets it succinct, and he's going around, very likely, giving it to people, to priests, and to politicians in Judah, hoping they will read the words of the Lord given to him and say, oh, never mind, we're not joining up with the enemy, and we're definitely not worshiping other gods. He calls them through the scriptures to repentance. And interestingly, I think these scriptures teach us a lot about the nature of scripture itself, the entirety of the canon. You see, not all the scripture is written to us. Particularly some of these books in the Old Testament, you're like, I am not a king. I don't have control of an army. I've never once been tempted to make, you know, an unhealthy war alliance. That's just not something that comes up for me every day. Not all of these scriptures are written to us, but for sure they're all written for us. You see, it's almost as if God is recording 
certain parts of the history of his people under his divine inspiration, inerrantly, infallibly, and the future generations get his scriptures, and it's almost as if God is behind them, kind of ominously asking, is, 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 is history going to repeat itself? Or are you going to learn from what I've said throughout history? You see, history is really only doomed to repeat itself because we're doomed to repeat ourselves. However, we don't have to repeat all of this. Jude is now repeating what happened in northern Israel. They're also going to repeat the judgment that came to northern Israel. Just like northern Israel had an invasion and eventually an exile, the southern kingdom will have an invasion from a king called Sennacherib, and they'll eventually be taken exile into Babylon, which is where we pick up guys like Daniel, written about in the Bible. And that did not have to happen if they would have taken the word of the Lord, read it, repented, and obeyed it. This is what Hosea is doing with his teachings and writings and prophecy. He is delivering them in hopes to impart wisdom and love for God that leads to repentance. Here's a question as we study the intense, powerful, convicting book of Hosea. Will we repeat history or will we learn from Scripture? This book is filled with warnings against idolatry. Will we take God's word that idolatry leads to judgment? Or will we learn from scripture and repent of our idolatry? This book's going to have a lot to say about living for the glory of God, about obedience, about the path of God, taking that path over any other path. If you don't, you'll wander to places you never wanted to go. Are we going to take those paths like everybody else? Or are we going to learn from Scripture, from the Word of the Lord that comes to us generations later from guys like Hosea? And we'll repent from all other paths and take God's path. Will we repeat history or will we break the cycle and change history forever for the glory of God? That's the question of the book of Hosea. Will we learn from Him? Will we learn from Scripture? Will we, unlike them, the Israelites of this time period, learn? What else do we learn about? We learn about Scripture, and we learn about Jesus. Because ultimately, all Scripture is about Jesus. That's right. The whole Old Testament points towards Him. whole New Testament points back to Him. The epicenter of the Bible is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Literally, it is all about Jesus. Even the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, points to His second coming from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end. This scripture is ultimately about Him, Jesus Christ. Right? In the book of Hosea, we see that Hosea himself is what we call in theology a type of Christ. He is a type. And when we're talking about type, what we mean is that Hosea, his words, his actions, his story foreshadowed the coming Messiah's words, actions, and story. So I'll give you a couple other examples of type just to show you what this is, and then we'll see how Hosea is indeed a type of Christ. 
Right? Another type of Christ that you might be more familiar with and more obvious at first is Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is the father who is willing to sacrifice the son. Of course, God comes in, provides a sacrifice of his own. But Abraham and Isaac, in this moment, they are types, right? God the Father will eventually sacrifice God the Son, and that happened on the cross at Calvary. Uh, another one, uh, Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the, the great fish for three days, and then he is back on shore. Jesus himself said that that was a type of Christ, how Jesus will have to go into the grave and it will spit him back out three days later. David is a type of Christ. Remember when you first meet David, he's a shepherd boy. He's a nobody. He is not even presented to Samuel as an option for being king. And Samuel says, do you have any other sons? And Jesse, David's father, says, well, there's the farmhand out back. He's my son, but he's like a shepherd. I mean, you're probably not looking for him. He's never been to war. He's not a military guy. And Samuel says, let me see him. And surely that was the Lord's anointed. He was the king. Jesus was, for lack of better words, a nobody from Nazareth. He was poor. He was modest and humble. And yet he becomes the glorious king. David typifies this. David is a type of Christ. Now let's get to Hosea. Hosea is a type of Christ because Hosea here is going to marry. He is going to be asked to, commanded to marry a lady named Gomer who is unfaithful in marriage. She is an adulteress and very likely a temple prostitute herself in the worship of Baal. He is going to marry this unfaithful wife as a picture, a type of Jesus eventually bringing a new covenant to Israel and to the world, though many of us will reject him, and even those of us who accept him sometimes will turn our backs on him momentarily for the pleasures of sin. There's this idea that Hosea is going to act like Jesus acts when Jesus loves sinners, which he came to do. So we see this in verses 2 and 3, if you want to read along with me. Now, I will admit, this is an intense read. The whole book is, it starts with a bang, 2 and 3, it's, it's just right out the gate. It's, it's tough to read. It's intense. But here's what it says. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, go and take into thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. For the land commits great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. She conceived, bared him a son. To fully understand the intensity of all this, let's back up a little bit. What's going on? First of all, you have to think all the way back to Genesis. God comes to a guy named Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. Figuratively, but almost literally, he, in a sense, marries himself to Abraham. Totally out of love, totally out of grace, totally out of God's goodness. He says, Abraham, I'm promising myself to you. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you. And out of you will come so many sons. There will be a great nation. You can never even number them. And out of that nation is going to come 
a man we know now as Jesus, was going to come and he was going to be a blessing to all the families of the world. Now here's the problem, as you might remember, Abraham didn't have any sons at this point and could not conceive with his wife. They were old, but God kept his promise. He had a son, and he had another son, and they had sons and sons upon sons. And eventually, we catch up with them in the book of Exodus, and it's a nation of people just like God had promised, just like God had covenanted. And God comes to their leader after getting them out of slavery and getting them under the clutches of Pharaoh out into the wilderness. He comes to their leader, a guy named Moses, and he expands on that covenant. Now he's making a covenant with Moses and the nation that came from Abraham. And he sort of basically, what he does is he develops the terms of that covenant, the terms of that agreement, that arrangement. We find this in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And one of the things he says is, you're not to have any other gods. You're not to worship any other gods. You're not to think about it, look like you're doing it, uh, yeah, do it just a little bit on the side is me and that's it no other gods before me no other gods at all right this is a covenant I'm going to stick with you I'm asking for you to stick with me no unholy alliances with foreign nations that bring their gods to you for worship in those terms of this covenant he says if you disobey this covenant you are breaking it and it is like, very, very similar to this idea that you are cheating on me. See, it's a covenant, like unto a marriage covenant. They are to be his people. He is going to be their God. And if they go after other gods, in a very real sense, they are unfaithful. In a very real sense, they are cheating the terms of the covenant and cheating thus on God. And God promises in those books, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that that will not go well for them. He will bring judgment, mostly the judgment of letting them go off to those gods who will then fail them over and over and over. Additionally, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll see he doesn't stop there. That he says, yes, there will be judgment. The consequences of your sins will be great, but I will still love you. I'll always love you because though you may break your side of the covenant, I will never break my side of the covenant. Right? And so here was what we got. By this time period, somewhere in 2 Kings and uh, the prophet Hosea, the nation of Israel has done what they ought not. They made that unholy alliance. They took on other gods. They broke the terms of the covenant, and they are about to get what's coming, the consequence of all of this debauchery. However, God, as broken as his heart is, his heart is full, and he still loves them with an amazing love and he will eventually chase them down and win them back to himself. And to show that all this is going on and that all this will happen, he brings forth Hosea as a demonstration and a symbol. Hosea must go before the people. He has a public wedding to a girl who, will either be, who either already is or will likely become very soon, 
a prostitute, an adulteress. That's right, the prophet marries a prostitute. He's likely around 20 years old when this word comes to him, this command comes to him. He is likely from an obedient family as he's a young man who is obedient. And now he is going to have a tarnished reputation. Now he is going to have a confusing legacy for those around him and in his immediate future. Now he is going to be shamed because this woman that he has married is going to be unfaithful in incredibly public ways, eventually even being sold off at a slave auction after nobody wants her anymore. And yet, what you will find is Hosea is going to stay with her in the midst of all her unfaithfulness, leaving him, leaving the kids that they're about to have together, he is going to run after her, and he is even going to put his own money down at that slave market, and he is going to redeem her, literally buy her back for himself, and he is going to faithfully love her again with all that he is. And this marriage is all done to demonstrate God's faithful love for unfaithful people. Ultimately, Hosea is demonstrating. Hosea is being called to demonstrate what God is like as our covenant-keeping friend. What God is like in his great grace and love. Ultimately, Hosea demonstrates God's love, which is found in Jesus. Here... Hosea is an obedient son. He's an obedient son of God, and he points to a larger story, the obedient son of God. Hosea has a great love for his wife, Gomer, who cheats on him, and it points us to a larger story of Jesus and his love for those who would run from him. I think of guys like Peter. Do you remember Jesus and Peter? You know, Peter was the first to claim Jesus as God. He was also the first to deny that Jesus was God. They were closer, perhaps, than some of the other disciples were. The Bible says all the time that he took aside Peter, James, and John. They had a lot of unique discussions recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It was God the Father. Then right before Jesus hung on the cross for Peter, after Peter said he'd stick with him no matter what, Peter denied him three times. But Jesus did not deny Peter. Jesus rises and returns to Peter, and he calls Peter into ministry, and it's Peter who preaches that first sermon after Pentecost. Peter writes First and Second Peter, forever etched in the New Testament of our Bibles, because Jesus loves faithfully those who are unfaithful to him. We learn about Jesus from Hosea. He is a type of Christ. And he shows the love of Christ. And there is a piece of it to where he is hoping to comfort those who are afflicted by their own sin. See, when you're unfaithful and you come to grips with it, there's devastation at who you are. And part of the goal of Hosea is to show there's a merciful God above. 
that even in the midst of your sin, God's grace is greater, that you will never run so far away as to outrun the love of God, that there is always hope. In fact, one of the mega themes of this crazy book of really heavy content is hope. One of the outcomes of reading Hosea from the heart is rest in a loving God. Hosea wants you to rest. He wants to bring comfort to those afflicted by their sin. However, that's not all he's going to do. And that's not all he's going to call us to do. He's not just going to call us to rest. He's also going to call us to resist. You see, through this book, we learn about Scripture. We learn about Jesus. But that also means we learn about us. We learn about ourselves. We learn about our sin and the judgment we've incurred. As glorious as this book will paint the love of God, it will paint sin darker than midnight. Hosea is this wonderful picture of Jesus that's great and beautiful and helpful and inspiring. But that means that in the story, we're Gomer. I mean, I want you to make sure you get this as offensive as this is. And it's meant to be offensive. I need you to understand this. Whoever you are out there listening, you are not Hosea in this book. You are Gomer. You are Gomer. If you are God's people, and yet you've been unfaithful to your covenant to God through your sin, you are Gomer. Like Gomer, and like these Israelites listening in the original audience, it is likely you don't even understand how like Gomer you are. Because you do not see the severity of your sin. It's like we don't even believe what God says when he tells us about the horrors of the judgment that's coming. It's like these people, they don't even understand, they can't comprehend that their sin will find them out. And like Gomer in chapters 1 through 3, right? Um, and like Gomer in chapters 1 through 3, Israel and Judah will basically become so comfortable with idolatry, with adultery on God, that they won't even see what they are doing as wrong. And thus, Hosea has this twofold mission. First, he does comfort those afflicted by their sin, but his second edge to his sword is to come and afflict those who are comfortable in their sin. He comes to comfort the afflicted, but he also comes to afflict the comfortable. That's why there's words in this book we don't typically say in church. Like the word whoredom, used in verse 2 and 3, three times. Whoredom. He says, the beginning of the word of the Lord to Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, go take thee a wife of whoredoms, children of whoredoms. The, the land has created great whoredom. Whoredom is not a word we think of when we think of the word of God. We typically think of it as some sort of, you know, very clean, uh, very appropriate, poetic, holy, you know, uh, G-rated thing. 
And that's likely because we haven't read the Bible in a while, because when you open the Bible, you're going to find words like this word. It's not even a word I feel super comfortable using. It's not a word that can any way be sugar-coated. It cannot be downplayed. It cannot be, you know, cleaned up. When God uses this word, he must have an incredibly specific purpose for it because there is no way around it. And here's the idea that God is using words like this through Hosea. He is using Hosea to write words like these to afflict those comfortable in sin. He wants to wake his people up. He wants to jolt them. He wants to shock them. He wants to jar them. He wants to, he wants to open their eyes to who they really are. And he knows it is going to take an atomic bomb, not you know, a, 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 an alarm clock. So he drops these words like whoredom and they start to realize and they are faced with how evil, wicked, and destructive their sin really is. I remember some years ago, I'm in high school, a couple of friends and I were in study hall, we were really bored, and we were looking for pranks to pull, and so we wanted to pull a prank, and so we started thinking and joking, and we are about 16 at the time, and we thought, what if we took one of these fire extinguishers from the hallway, and we sprayed it outside, so we did, and we thought it was hilarious, and it looked like we got away with it for a couple of days, what a prank. A couple of days later, the assistant principal and then the principal pulls us into their offices and they did not call it a prank. They called it a crime. And when they called it a crime, I remember the jolt. I remember the fear. I remember the the shock. I remember how that woke me up to the fact that that really wasn't no big deal. That if there's a fire, with a bunch of kids in the school and no fire extinguisher, that could go really, really, really bad. Someone committed a crime. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to come in where they've all called their sin no big deal, and they've called their sin uh, uh, reasonable, and they've called their sin oops or mistake. He's going to come in and say it's whoredom in efforts to wake them up. See, you need to realize this. You're them. God, through the book of Hosea, looks at us. He looks at me. He looks at you. And he doesn't wink at our sin. And he doesn't overlook our sin. And he doesn't downplay or sugarcoat our sin, our idolatry, our filth. He says it's whoredom. Those of you comfortable in your sin, this is the word God uses. For you, this is the word God uses for those of you who will not stand for anything. For those of you who neglect your families, those of you who refuse to provide for your families, those of you dealing drugs, those of you trying to look way better than you really are on social media, those of you who are diving headlong into sexual impurity, this is the word God has for all of that. Whoredom. It is like cheating on God and breaking your covenant with him. He calls you this name. Partly what he's doing is trying to wake you up to it, to get your attention like a siren, like a bullhorn, like a bomb, so that you can repent of sin. 
His goal is to afflict you, to save you from the affliction coming to you. Affliction over your sin is painful, but it is nothing compared to the affliction of your sin. He wants so much more than you than the consequences coming your way. He wants so much more for you than the consequences of sin. He wants you to live wisely. He wants you to live for his glory. He wants us to live for our good. He does not want us to repeat history. He wants us to obey scripture. And yes, this book, Hosea, it is one of drama. Hosea is like the shock jock of the Old Testament. I mean, this thing is engaging. It It is got intense pageantry all throughout it. Right? But I want you to know that at the end of the day, as big as these words are, and as emotional as they are, in them is common sense, practical wisdom. The book is teaching us about the scriptures. The book of Hosea is teaching us about Jesus. The book of Hosea is teaching about us, us, ourselves, our sins. But it's also teaching about wisdom. In fact, we've looked at the first line of the book. Let's look at the last line of the book. Turn 14 chapters over to Hosea 14.9. Hosea 14.9. In Hosea 14.9, this last verse of the entire book, we have likely Hosea's, almost like it's his editor's note. I believe it is Hosea who wrote this. Perhaps it could be a disciple of Hosea helping him compile the book. But in this editor's note, he basically says, here's the whole point. I wrote all this to write this. I said all this to say this. And in Hosea 14, 9, here's what he says. Who is wise? Wise. Who is wise and shall understand these things? Who is prudent and shall know them? For the ways of the Lord are right. And the just, or the wise, will walk in them, but transgressors shall fall therein. Let me explain by giving an illustration. God's got this path. And if you live God's way, in God's love, with love for him, you will walk through that path with freedom and blessing. I'm not saying that you will walk through that path with wealth, health, popularity. That path actually might make you poorer through your giving. It might make you suffer through persecution. It might make you less popular, but your soul will flourish. However, if you are determined to walk down God's path with rebellion against God, not in love with him, but ignoring him, in denial of him, okay, this path will eventually wreak havoc on your soul. You might actually gain wealth. You might actually gain popularity. But at the end of the day, it will be your stumbling block, this path, this way of God. Okay? In this book, Hosea spends 14 chapters saying, here's how God has made the world to work. Here is how God has made your soul to flourish. Live in the wisdom of God, and that's what you get. But he spends 14 chapters preaching this to people who deny it, who ignore it, 
and who rebel against it. And he records prophecies of their soul's destruction that all come to fruition. And it's left recorded for us in a summarized, easy-to-read version for all of eternity, for all of world history, so that we could look down at this path and we, though they didn't, we could hear Hosea's call to repent, to do what God has called us to do, like have no other gods before him and flourish in his way. At the end of the day, Hosea is not even calling them to something all that dramatic. There's drama involved. It's not even all that emotional, though there's emotion involved. Though there's all this pageantry with his marriage to the prostitute and everything, at the end of the day, he's saying, love God with all your heart and obey him. That's wisdom. And as we read it, we get a chance. We get a chance to do what the Israelites didn't. We get a chance to accept this covenant, to walk in God's ways, to live wisely, and to flourish rather than experience judgment and invasion and death. And so as we finish up going through the syllabus, here's the big ideas. We're going to be learning about Scripture. We're going to be learning about Jesus. We're going to be learning about sin and the judgment thereof. We're going to be learning about wisdom. But your job is to keep up through the course, to read and to take heed to the words of Hosea, which was written to help you flourish under a God whose love is so faithful even to unfaithful people. Let's pray.